For almost 70 years, the Israelites had lived in exile under the rule of the Babylonian Empire. In 539 BC, Yahweh called his people back to the Promised Land through the edict of the Persian king Cyrus II. The first return to Judah was under the governorship of Shezebar in 538 BC, and then following him was the governor Zerubbabel, and they began to rebuild the temple. Not all the Jews returned. A very small percentage of them did. Jeremiah said that when the end of exile came, you had to return to the promised land because there is no blessings outside the promised land. Yet very few returned. They had gotten comfortable living in their new life in exile. They had already been uprooted once 70 years ago, and they didn't want to uproot themselves again after 70 years. The new generation come along and had never, ever known the land of Israel, never known what they had used what they had been a part of. And so they didn't want to give up what they were familiar with, and they had no idea what was back for them. And so very few returned. Now, at first they began to rebuild the temple, because without the temple, there is no atonement for sins. And it's not that God wanted a temple, remember? It's that the temple was the only thing left. And so they began to rebuild it. But like always, they gave up their faith and trust in God that he could take care of them no matter what. And four nations threatened to attack them if they continued to build the temple because they saw the temple as a threat to their own power. Zerubbabel and the Israelites feared that and they gave in to the fear and they did not trust God and they stopped building the temple. Then the prophets, the post-exilic prophets of Haggai, came and rebuked them and called them to continue to finish the building of the temple. And they did. They finished it in 515 B.C., However, the glory of Yahweh did not return. The glory of Yahweh did not return. Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, he had another vision. In that vision, he saw the glory of Yahweh returning back to the promised land. He saw a new temple, a temple that was bigger and unlike anything that that had ever been built. And in this temple, the glory of God returns from exile with them, and he indwells the temple, and the temple comes alive. It begins to flourish with plants, and a river flows out of it, and it goes to all the nations, even into the Dead Sea, and turns the Dead Sea into life-giving garden. And then it goes to all the nations and begins to change it. And what Ezekiel saw was a day that the nation would turn to the Promised Land, and God would actually make a temple that would cover the entire earth and bring the Garden of Eden to the entire earth. And so when Ezekiel saw a new temple, he wasn't seeing a physical building. He was seeing a metaphor for the new Jerusalem that God had promised. But he did see the return of the Shekinah glory of God. Yet when they build this temple, it's a small building compared to Solomon's, and it's not alive. And the glory of Yahweh does not indwell it. And it does not grow or spring a river and flow anywhere. The people who remember the days of Solomon, maybe even the people that know what the prophets intended for this new temple, begin to cry. Because they realize that even though they have returned from physical exile, exile isn't really over with. Because just because you're back in the garden, well, if God isn't there with you and the glory then it's not a garden. And so they begin to cry, and this becomes the sign that exile is still going. Still going. The second return to the promised land was in 458 B.C. under the leadership of Ezra. 
Ezra discovered that the Jewish leaders had divorced their wives and married pagan women. This shows you that they had not changed either. Not only were they not trusting in God to protect them from the foreign nations that opposed them, to build the temple, to reinstitute the atonement for sins, to reestablish their relationship with God and the thing that breaks the relationship with God, but it showed that their heart's desire for the things that are not of God had not changed. That they were willing to divorce their own Jewish wives and take on other foreign women. Now remember, marrying foreign women is not wrong. But foreign women who do not come into the covenant by faith is wrong. And it shows that in their heart, they were not willing to subordinate their desires to God. So Ezra commanded them to get a divorce in order to maintain the purity of the covenant community. Ezra did what he thought was right, but he ignored the fact that God hates divorce. That as they broke one covenant with God and another covenant with their previous wives, he was now calling them to break another covenant in order to try to reestablish another covenant. And then not only that, he cast the wives and the children out, which shows a complete disregard for the nations that were coming in. Not in the right way, but at least they were coming in. This isn't exactly probably the wisest thing that he could do. It did not exactly demonstrate the character of God. Even though his motives were good, it showed that he too was completely disconnected from the will of God, or it's partly disconnected from Now, Ezra was an amazing man of faith. He was an incredible godly leader, but that doesn't mean he was perfect. And he did make mistakes. And so it showed you that even the leadership still was flawed. Even the great godly men and women were still making mistakes. Just like Moses, Joshua, Elijah, Elisha, made mistakes as great godly men. So were these new godly leaders still making mistakes. The third return was in 445 BC under the leadership of Nehemiah, who rebuilt the city walls. He too discovered that the exile had not changed the hearts of the people and that they were returning to their own sinful ways as they completely ignored spending time with God on the Sabbath day, as they were working to build their own houses rather than doing ministry for God and expanding the garden, and as they were allowing corrupt, non-converted people to come in and actually live inside the temple. What this all shows with all these returns is that, yes, not only was God faithful to honor His promises and bring the people back to the land, but it showed that the people had not changed. Judgment did not change hearts, which emphasizes all the more the need for a circumcised heart. Being in the promised land and being blessed by God did not change hearts before the exile. Having incredibly powerful governments that covered the entire promised land like God promised under leadership of Solomon did not change hearts. Miracles and resurrections did not change hearts. Incredible victories against pagan enemies did not change hearts. Being in time out for a very long time and all of your toys and blessings being taken away did not change hearts. All God is doing here is showing that no matter what you can think of, no matter what he can do, no matter what happens, hearts don't change. It is going to take God himself to enter into us, to begin to change things. Most of the Jews did not return to the land. 
Though Yahweh had commanded it through Jeremiah 29, outside the promised land, the vice-regent Haman of the Persian Empire put a plan into action to exterminate all the Jews of the empire on a specific day of the year. This is found in Esther chapter 3. Esther and Mordecai are examples of an uncle and a niece who disobeyed God and did not return to the promised land like they were supposed to. They're ruling in a Persian empire outside the land with many, 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 many Jews still outside the promised land who refused to return to the the promised land, who refused to heed the word of Jeremiah who commanded the return, who are not reaping the blessings of the promised land, who are not back to the temple and the atonement of sins. And yet, despite this, when Haman comes, the vice region of the Persian empire, a land that is not safe, a land that is outside the will of God, who chooses to turn on the people of God, one would expect God to allow them to be completely destroyed because they have rejected God. They have refused to enter back in the promise and the covenant, and they are outside the promised land, yet God still takes care of them. And not only does he take care of the Jewish people because that is his character and is what he promised, but he uses Mordecai and Esther, who are themselves outside the will of God, to save the Jews from annihilation by issuing a counter-edict that allowed the Jews to defend themselves on that day. However, Esther went power-hungry, vengeful, and she sought revenge and issued a second edict to have all those whom the Jews suspected of being their enemy to be killed on the following day. This was not the character of Yahweh. Vengeance. Payback. This was her corrupted with power. Yet despite this, the continued sin and rebellion of the Jewish people, Yahweh used them to restore his people to the promised land, rebuild the city and the temple of Jerusalem, and bless his people. In the land, those who returned. And outside the land, those who refused to return, they still were the same fallen humans. And yet God still used them, and he still honored his promise to keep them going. Because ultimately, he loved these people and wants to redeem them and restore them. And he needs them to fulfill his promises to Abraham to bring the Messianic king. It was during these years of the three returns back to the promised land that Yahweh then sent the second major group of prophets called the post-exilic prophets. This is Obadiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Joel, and Malachi. They rebuked Israel for their continued sin despite the judgment of exile. No matter how many times Israel repented, they always went back to their sinful ways. The physical exile was not over, but their, the physical exile was over but their spiritual exile would not be over until they truly repented and were faithful to Yahweh. This could only happen when Israel's heart was changed, as the pre-exilic prophets had previously foretold. So they continue the same message. You need your heart circumcised. Exile is not over with. It will never be over until you're faithful to God. In Zechariah, God specifically spoke through the prophet, and the people said, hey, is exile now over with? And God speaking through Zechariah said, no, not until you are faithful. Not until, now, God didn't mean faithfulness and obedience, because he's already proven over the last hundred, several hundred years, that they can never be faithfully obedient to God in any kind of a way. But what he meant was a repentant heart, 
a blameless heart, a practical, functional righteousness, a heart that cannot perfectly obey, but wants to obey, and when it doesn't, it repents. But at this point, Israel was even struggling with that. And until they truly repented and came back to God, the spiritual exile was not going to be over. This could only happen when their heart was changed. In harmony with the pre-exilic prophets, Yahweh also promised that through the post-exilic prophets that he would establish the new Jerusalem, where he would pour out his spirit on the covenant people and dwell with them and defeat their enemies. Joel chapter 2, verse 28. After all this, I will pour out my spirit on all kinds of people. Your sons, your daughters will prophesy. Your elderly will have revelatory dreams. Your young men will see prophetic visions. Even on male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Joel emphasized, re-emphasized in a much deeper, more powerful way how this would all happen through the Spirit of God. But it was truly only the outpouring of the Spirit of God that can make this happen. Now, just as the beginning of creation, the world was described as formless and empty, darkness and a watery chaos. There was void of life and no life could thrive there. Yet it was the Spirit of God who came and hovered over the waters and subdued the chaos and began to change the chaotic waters into life-giving waters. And it was out of the life-giving waters that the land of the Garden of Eden rose up. That was also the cosmic mountain. A land flowing with blessings where he put Adam and Eve in the soil to be connected to the soil and to have an intimate relationship with God. It was the Spirit of God who parted the Red Sea of chaos and brought an orderly corridor through the sea that allowed them to escape the chaos of Egypt and to have life in the promised land. It was the Spirit of God that came over the waters of the flood, subduing them and allowing the Ark of the Covenant to hit dry land and for the people to get off the Ark and experience life. Just like Moses would walk across the dry land with his people into the promised land of the soil. Over and over again, we keep seeing the Spirit of God subduing the chaos. Now, what the Joel is saying is that there's a chaos in our heart. And that same Spirit is going to be poured into our hearts, and He's going to subdue the chaos, the darkness, the formlessness, and the emptiness, and bring a garden into our heart that can actually want to and be able to obey the will of God, and then do the will of God by expanding the garden. The post-exilic prophets also developed the idea of the messianic king, also being a priest. The idea of the messianic king also being a priest who would cleanse Israel of their sins. Zechariah 6, 11-13 says, Take some silver and gold to make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua the high priest the son of Zehoidazak. Then say to him, Yahweh of heaven's armies says, Look, here is the man whose name is Branch, who will sprout up from his place and build the temple of Yahweh. Indeed, he will build the temple of Yahweh, and he will be clothed in splendor, sitting as king on his throne. Moreover, there will be a priest with him on his throne, and they will see eye to eye on everything. 
Yahweh had the prophet Zechariah temporarily place a king's crown on the head of Joshua, the high priest, in order to symbolically show that one day the Messiah would be both king and high priest over Israel and the nations. The prophets called this messianic king priest the branch. The Bible portrayed Israel as a tree cut down by the Assyrians and the Babylonians as judgment from Yahweh for their sins. The branch is the promised Messiah that would be a new shoot growing up out of Israel and the Davidic line and redeeming Israel and the world. As king, the branch would destroy all evil and rule righteously over the nations. As high priest, the branch would make atonement for all sin to bring the faithful into an intimate relationship with Yahweh. One of the new things that these post-exilic prophets begin to add is the idea that this king would also be high priest. Now this is important because now we're beginning to see the picture. If a king is someone who rules over the people and executes the will of God, the priest is the one who mediates between God and the people relationally. He is the one who atones for the sins of the people. And so just like Isaiah 53 briefly painted this picture of a suffering servant that would come and be stricken and suffer for our sins, now we see the idea that he will do this and be able to do this because he will be our priest. See, Isaiah 53 painted him as the lamb, the sacrificial lamb. The prophets, the post-exilic prophets, are painting him as the high priest who makes the sacrifice of the lamb. And so now between these two, we see the picture of not only will he be the one who makes the sacrifice, he will be the sacrifice. And he will bring atonement of sins, and he will bring forgiveness of sins. And so we see the king-priest, the king-priest and these prophets. Despite the return to Judah, the glory of Yahweh had not returned. There was no promised king ruling in Jerusalem like the prophets foretold. Judah was under the rule of foreign empires, even though they were supposed to be the new Jerusalem with the nations, the empires crumbling around them and the nations coming and dwelling with them, becoming a part of this new covenant. The prophets were dwindling in number, and eventually they began to lose their ability to go into the divine council, and eventually they went completely silent, even though the Messianic king was supposed to be the ultimate prophet of Deuteronomy 18, connected to God more than anybody had ever been, and connecting other people to God so that they would know his will. For the next 400 years, Yahweh watched over his people despite this. For the next 400 years, not only was it clear that the promises of God were not happening. See, we read in Hosea that on that day, God would lead, allure his people back to the promised land. He would restore their grain and their wine and olive oil, and he would bring them the Messiah who would establish a new Jerusalem. They thought very easily return to the land meant the beginning of the prophetic promises. But not only did they not reap the prophetic promises, it was actually worse than it ever was when they were originally in the land. Because the glory of God did not return. There are no prophets, and the pagan nations are oppressing them even more. Because after the Persian Empire that was pretty light and compassionate came the Greeks 
and the Romans, who were brutal, more brutal than anything that they ever experienced. And they begin to think that God abandoned them. Yet despite this, God remained faithful to his people. He continued to watch over them. We see this ultimately demonstrated in not only the greatest act of brutality under the hands of the Greeks, but also one of the greatest acts of deliverance during the 400 silent years of God. When Antiochus IV came, a Greek ruler, and just smashed the Jews, forced them to make pig sacrifices to the pagan god Zeus, went into the temple and desecrated it and defiled it, called the abomination of desolation that Daniel had predicted, and began to persecute and destroy and slaughter the Jews for not complying to his decrees. Yet in that, God miraculously delivered the temple back to them, allowed them to cleanse it, and began to shake off the rule of the pagan empire and a great independence act that happened over multiple generations. Yet even in this, they still did not change. Yet in this, God continued to take care of them and watch over them and preserve them, just as he always had done. However, there was no word or revelation from him. There was no prophets. Israel was largely given over to their own will because this same people that God used, the Hasmoneans, to deliver Israel from the oppression of the pagan kings were the very people that began to act like the pagan kings and became corrupt with their own power and began to oppress and enslave the very people that they had just freed and eventually invited the pagan kings back into the nation to rule and oppress the people again because God allowed them to do what they want and gave them over to this. The first testament had revealed the utter and hopeless sin and rebellion of humans, regardless of Yahweh's judgments or blessings. Yet Yahweh remained true to his character and promises and continued to work out his plan of redemption through his covenant people in order to bless them and the surrounding nations through them. During this time, Israel's hope in the coming Messiah would be bring that who would bring the new Jerusalem grew greater and greater and greater in anticipation of his arrival and his deliverance. As the pagan nations oppressed them more, and as the prophets remained silent longer, their hope and desire for the Messianic king grew greater and greater. This summarizes the first testament well. The First Testament is making two major arguments that no matter what, humans will sin and rebel and fail to be faithful. This is why, I've said this over and over again, this is why Paul says, for all has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You and I grew up hearing that passage. And for us, it was a philosophical, abstract, theological concept, a truth that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's, we believed it. It was true to us. It's part of our gospel. It's part of the message that brought us to Christ and made us surrender to him. But in a lot of ways, it's just a theological, abstract, philosophical concept of sin. Yes, we're all sinners. We can see that in our children. We can see in ourselves. But for the Jews who were reading Paul's letters, who grew up steeped in the stories of the First Testament, it was not an abstract theological concept. It was the story of Adam and Eve. 
and Cain and the flood and the Tower of Babylon and David and Israel and Elijah and the, the wilderness generation and Moses. There were thousands upon thousands of stories that flooded in their head how the pagans failed miserably to become godly and rule over the people, how godly men and women failed miserably to do what they were supposed to be, and Israel corporately failed to do what they are supposed to be. It wasn't this concept that we sin. What is sin? It was a very real historical story of their people. And every single time, Paul, James, Peter, John, the author of Hebrews, is writing, their writing, their theological concepts are steeped in the visual stories of men and women throughout the history of Israel. This is why it's so important that we start our kids off on the stories of the First Testament before we have them memorizing passages in the Second Testament. The children are so visual. They're so stories-oriented. And I'm not against scripture memorization, but... They're memorizing some of these passages in the prophets and the Second Testament, and they don't really know. I mean, we read Paul and Peter and struggle to understand what they're saying half the time, let alone having them memorize things that the little children. But what they do get is stories. You tell them accurately the story of Gideon and Samson and David and all that kind of stuff. And there's great stories in there that they can learn from that. And if you raise them up on those stories, which they, you guys know this, they watch one movie and they have it practically memorized. My girls have watched How to Train Your Dragon, and after the first time they have all the dragon's names memorized, all this kind of like, <laughs> give them these stories. And then when they have these stories and rooted into their life and the, 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 the idea and the truths that God is teaching and his character and who we are in relation to that, then when they get older and they start memorizing the scriptures, it's going to mean so much more to them. If this is how God starts with First Testament and then Second Testament, this is how we should start with our children. This is what God is doing. This brings us to the second main point that the First Testament is making. Despite this, God remained faithful to them. He continued to bless them despite their sin and rebellion. And he continued to use them in the redemption of other people. He continued to redeem them and bless them despite their sin and rebellion. And he continued to use them as a blessing and a redemption in the lives of other people. Now, why did he do this? Well, one, we're never told in the Bible why God loves us. We're never told why God loves us. We're just told that he does. And then he proves it through constant, continual demonstrations. I mean, think about it. If you ask somebody why they love you, and they're like, well, I love you because you're beautiful. You're like, what happens when that goes away? I love you because you're smart and funny and clever. What happens when I tell you the same jokes after 50 years, and I'm no longer funny or clever or witty. What happens when I'm no longer athletic? I love you because we have so many things in common. What if I get older and I don't enjoy those things anymore, and you don't enjoy them anymore? Every reason that anybody can give for loving you is temporal. It seems so cheap. Yet when they say, I love you because you're mine or because you're my friend, I'm committed. And then they prove that over time. That is powerful. The why somebody loves you is empty and frivolous. 
but the fact that they love you and demonstrate it, that is what's powerful and unshakable. God never tells us why he loves us. Yet, he tells us that he will never stop loving us and he'll always remain faithful to us and always love us because of his character and because he promised it. When we get to Hosea, Hosea makes it clear that the only reason that God is like upset with Israel and angry with them and wants to punish them and he wants to divorce them and he wants to toss them away, which we can all relate to that feeling for different people at different times in our life, Yet, he says, how can I do this to Israel? How can I divorce them and abandon them? And he says, I can't because my character does not allow me, my undying love for you that has no reason, and my promises do not allow me. That's the second main point that the First Testament is making. You will never find a being that is all-powerful and all-loving who pursues you no matter what to the ends of the earth like you do here. And the third point that the First Testament is making is that despite these two truths, that we will never stop sinning and he will never stop giving up on us, doesn't really truly allow for a relationship with him in the Garden of Eden. And therefore, he develops his promises more specifically and more tightly and more like a piercing, piercing arrow that just drives through all the chaos of a coming Messiah that will reconcile these two things together. That will bring a day where the Garden of Eden will be established again. These are the three main, main ideas of the First Testament. Not just the meta narratives that I've been developing constantly, but these are three main ideas of our sinfulness, his faithfulness, and his promised Messiah who will give us the ability to be faithful in a relationship with him and the Garden of Eden, the New Jerusalem. This is what the First Testament is pointing to. This is what the Second Testament is going to unpack, to fulfill. <laughs>